Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding new drugs for our various diseases and ailments is one of the biggest industries in the world. But how does so-called Big Pharma operate? How do they choose what to work on? And how does an idea get from the lab to your local chemist? AstraZeneca is one of the world's leading pharmaceutical companies, and they have recently moved to Cambridge. So Chris Smith took the opportunity to speak to Mene Pangalos. He's the executive vice president of AstraZeneca's Innovative Medicines and Early Development Biotech Unit, and they spoke about how a company like his invents and markets medicines in the modern era. Turning science uh, into medicine is probably the hardest journey we go on in, in, in our careers and what actually gets us out of bed every morning. If we take a disease like heart failure where we're trying to regenerate the heart or reduce the damage in the heart after a heart attack, we'll take a cardiomyocyte, a cell from the heart, and we'll try and understand how that cell works, how it survives, and how it can try and affect its survival in a positive way. We may find a receptor that's expressed on the surface of that cell. A receptor could be, I would think about it like a lock that we can unpick or open with a key, the key being the drug. And if we can find a molecule that is able to turn that lock open so that the receptor gets switched on, and as a consequence of switching it on, we're able to keep that cell alive, that's how you start to think about generating a therapy that can regenerate the heart. So what do you do then? Do you, you start with, you think, we know what that receptor looks like. So then you go to your chemists and say, I want you to design me just umpteen molecules that might engage with that lock. And, and then we'll try them. I mean, what's the process? It's, it's, it's long and arduous. And of course, we're in, simplifying it to the nth degree. But that's exactly right. You say, uh, I understand the shape of that lock. Uh, find me some keys that fit it. But when you find those keys, please make sure they don't fit any other locks that are on the cell, which are the other receptors that you don't want to hit, because if you hit them, you have side effects, you have toxicities. So this is why the process is complicated and difficult. And then if you add the complexity on top of that of, and by the way, the key has to be able to penetrate the stomach and not be dissolved by all the acid in the stomach. It has to get just to the heart and not to the livers and the kidneys. It's got to be available for 24 hours during the day so that you only have to take it once a day. That adds the complexity to what our magical chemists have to do in terms of designing those molecules that unpick that particular lock and only that particular lock, but also do it in a way where you have a drug that's once a day, that's available as an oral pill, um, and that doesn't cause you lots of side effects when you take it. At what stage do you actually start putting it into a living thing, whether that's an animal or, or a person? How, how far do you have to go before you're saying, well, now it's worth actually trying this? It, it takes quite a long time because the, 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 the keys or the molecules have to be stable, they have to be bioavailable, um, they have to be selective, so they can't hit every other lock as we talked about earlier. And so that can take years before you get into, a, into an animal. Now, with the advent of things like gene editing, for example, we can do certain experiments um, to give us an idea about whether the target or that particular lock is important in a pathway for, for example, treating heart failure. 
Um, but ultimately, from the idea where you have your target, what you want to work on, to getting a molecule that selectively switches on or switches off that target can take a few years, depending on how difficult that lock is to unpick. And then optimizing that key to make it suitable for going into people, that can take probably another two to three years. And then you have to do all the toxicology experiments, which will take you another year or so. So you can see how very, very quickly you get to a journey that is somewhere between five and ten years um, in terms of going from the very first idea, that very first scientific concept in someone's mind to turning that into a molecule that you can put into clinical trials. And if we take a ratio of how many chemicals complete that journey and end up in a pill packet in the chemist and how many start the journey, what fraction actually make it? Less than 5%. So from the, when you've created the key to the lock and it's ready to go into people, less than 5% of those keys ever become medicines. So there must be a big price tag. If we're talking 10 years plus um, of investment to get to that stage, the amount you must spend for that 5% success rate must be humongous. Our industry invests billions. AstraZeneca invests over $6 billion a year just on research and development. So it's a huge, huge investment. Um, and, of course, you know the risks are incredibly high. So when we do get a drug that's successful, um, we get very, very excited. How long do you have to try to recoup? Because people may not realise you've got to spend these billions to get to the stage where there is now a safe molecule that's going into patients. How long do you have in order to recoup what you've had to spend and then have enough of a war chest, effectively, to invest in the next arsenal of chemicals that are going to become the next blockbusters, we hope? Yes. Um, well, from the time we identify that key, we generally file a patent. And given how long it takes us to move that molecule into clinical trials and then develop it through the clinical trials and ultimately get approved as a medicine, I would say on average we're probably in the region of around 10 years of patent exclusivity when you have that molecule, that key to yourself and no one else can copy it. But once the patent expires, 10 years down the road, for example, then anyone else can make that key and they can get their medicine approved. And, of course, once that happens you get what's called generic erosion and the price for molecule goes down very, very steeply um, and it becomes pretty much free for the rest of eternity. So in some respects you could say, yes, these drugs are expensive in the early phase, but then actually there is a huge benefit to humankind because they are there, as long as they keep working and we don't invent a better one, they're there for everyone to benefit from once you've made your money back. That's absolutely right. Yes, that's exactly right. And if you look at, for example, statins that were very successful medicines and you know, reasonably expensive medicines, once they uh, became genericized, once the generics came onto the marketplace, the price of those statins dropped literally overnight and they became essentially almost free and they will be almost free now forever. So how do you decide then what you are going to focus your company's efforts on? How do you choose which diseases you're going to go for? As a company, as AstraZeneca, we look at the areas where we feel we have the greatest strengths and capabilities and understanding and where we think we can have the biggest impact. We focus in oncology, respiratory disease and cardiovascular and metabolic diseases. And these are the areas where we think we have the strengths and capabilities in depth of science, clinical expertise, as well as commercial expertise 
to enable us to be competitive and to come up with really innovative medicines in that space. It's the 5th of September today, and in Brussels, this European initiative called Drive AB is having its final meeting. AstraZeneca are a partner in this EU group. And Drive AB is this initiative which is designed to drive reinvestment in research and development and responsible use of antibiotics because, as many people acknowledge, antibiotic resistance is a massive problem internationally. It's growing every year. But to cite Drive AB's statistics, they say there are just four pharmaceutical companies that have maintained investment in the development of new antibiotics. And there are just two companies that actually have agents which are in phase two, so actually in clinical trials. Most of your portfolio does not look at antibiotics. Why? Because you're clearly not out there on your own not looking at antibiotics. Why has the industry shifted away from what is clearly a massive demand area? So we've actually um, just recently partnered or spun out our antibiotics portfolio to Pfizer and we spun out also, I spun out a small biotech company in Boston called Entesis, which is doing very well and does have phase two assets um, and a number of preclinical assets in the uh, antimicrobial space. For us, it was a, an area of we can't spread ourselves too thin. So what are the areas where we think we can compete globally and do very, very well? And I think one of the dangers that we have in our industry is that you could try and do everything and then you don't do anything particularly well. So for us, it was a decision that in oncology, cardiovascular, respiratory disease, we can go into those areas deep. Um, we can we have all the capabilities that we need and we can compete globally. In the antimicrobial space, we didn't have the skill set that we needed to be globally competitive. Um, and so we decided to partner our antimicrobial efforts, um, say with Entesis and, uh, and divest to Pfizer. What is disincentivizing this industry to go down an area of, of mass demand. I mean, Dame Sally Davies says antibiotic resistance is a bigger threat than terrorism, which is really saying something in the present era, isn't it? It is. Uh, there is a huge unmet medical need, and thankfully there are companies that are still working in that space. Actually, many smaller companies are working in that space. It's a very, very challenging area in terms of coming up with novel mechanisms and novel pathways. If you think about how antibiotics are used today in terms of the fact that new antibiotics tend to be reserved as a last resort, which means that therefore your medicines are not adopted um, early and therefore um, it becomes difficult to justify any returns on your investment. Um, and then the regulatory environment has also been very challenging in terms of how you do your comparative trials to standard of care. It's made the environment, which has been changing, I think, very much in a positive direction, fueled um, by people like Dame Sally. Um, but ultimately, companies have to make the choices of where they think they can compete and actually be successful in addition to where they make a return on investment. But for us, it was driven by where do we think we have the strength, breadth, capabilities um, to compete um, because we can't do everything. So in the same way that we don't do antimicrobial research, we've also reduced our investment in neuroscience research and we partner very many of our neuroscience programs, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, all huge on my medical need. But we partner our late-stage Alzheimer's program with a company called Lilly, who have decided that it is a core area for them, or with Takeda for our anti-Parkinsonian drug, which is also a core area for Takeda. So I think we've moved away from an era where everyone tries to cover everything 
to an area where companies are focusing down on the areas where they think they can compete globally and compete effectively. Can we finish by looking forward a bit? Because I'd really like you to outline where you see this whole industry going in the next few decades. Because many people say that the era of just popping a pill is very much over. Technology is being brought to bear alongside the chemistry and the biochemistry. Technology is going to have a huge impact in our future. And one of the things actually that we have been thinking about is what's next in terms of the things that will continue to improve our productivity. We talked earlier about the very high levels of attrition, the industry benchmarks of molecules failing 95% of the time. So how do we get that success rate up to 10%, 20%, 30%? I think technology um, such as machine learning and artificial intelligence will help us in our laboratories in terms of how we optimize molecules, how we understand interactions of pathways in the cell, how we make better decisions about which um, targets in the cell to attack and which ones to leave alone. Um, I think there's going to be uh, a huge influx of genomic data that will help us stratify disease into subsets that are going to be more amenable to drug discovery. I think we're going to be diagnosing diseases earlier um, using imaging and using uh, better blood-based and urine-based tests that will, for example, diagnose cancer or Alzheimer's disease years before they're diagnosed today, which will then also, also make it easier for them to treat. And then when you look at how people use their mobile phones and their devices and you think about how you tie a medicine to a device, to an illness, where you can improve adherence to the medicine, where you can improve behaviors to the, to the illness as well as to um, how you respond to the therapy. I think you'll see devices becoming much more intertwined with our medicines in a way that improves both uh, their outcome but also um, adherence. Do you mean we have a smart pill, I swallow it, and it tells my phone I have actually taken it, and also the phone can tell it when to discharge its contents so that I get the right dose of the drug at the right time in the right place in my intestine to minimise the wastage and maximise the, the benefit to me? It can be anything from having a smart pill um, that you can direct to the certain part of the to the part of the body where you want the pill to have its effect, um, where you can have the pill release more or less drug because um, you want to have more or less activity depending on what the uh, the illness is, but also where you use your phone as an aid to help you with your illness as well, whether it be for example seeing where people are having asthma attacks in a park because pollen counts are high, tied to how you use your inhaler. Um, so I think there are various ways that we can link devices um, to sensors and ultimately to the pills that you take. Are you actively pursuing that? Oh, absolutely. Yes, we are. We're looking at how we use our, our smart devices to accompany our medicines to ultimately create a better outcome for patients. Many Pangloss of the pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca speaking there to Chris Smith. And if you want to hear more on the future of pharma, you can find a longer podcast at thenakedscientist.com slash podcasts.